loving God, we want to thank you for just those very words we're able to sing. Lord, we want to give you all the glory. You and you alone are the one who is worthy. And Lord, we just want to praise and adore our King of Kings this morning, to behold our God and to praise him. Lord, as we turn to your word now, we pray that you would just allow us to read and to take in, that you would allow us to listen and to think, Lord, that you would help us to digest your word to us today. Lord, may we see uh, you through these words. Lord, even in some of the difficulties and some of the mystery, Lord, just reveal more of yourself to us and remind us quite simply of that amazing truth that you know the end from the beginning and that Jesus wins. So open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds to your word this morning. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous uh, names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who uh, once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. 
The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Amen. A husband was looking through the newspaper, came upon a study that said that women use more words than men. Excited to tell his wife his long-held contention that women in general, his wife in particular, talked too much. He showed her the study results. The report stated men use about 15,000 words per day, but women use 30,000. His wife thought for a moment, then finally she said to her husband, it's because we have to repeat everything we say. The husband's reply, what? Sometimes we lowly men have a hard time understanding women. Thankfully today, we get a little bit of help from an angel with this woman here in Revelation 17 that we're trying to understand and get to grips with. We're thinking on the judgment of the great prostitute. We're at the end of the seven bowls where God has. In chapter 16, verse 19, remembered, uh, it said, God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Here in chapter 17, Babylon is exposed to us and we see it for what it is. It is a wicked and false world system, a religious, political, economic system. Last week, we looked at the first six verses and we thought on the exposure of the scarlet beauty. And John was introduced to a great prostitute and God's judgment on her is detailed here. The Lord chose a very vivid description as he inspired John to pen these words, revealing one who sells herself for profit and the pleasure of others. This world system that we're speaking of seeks to draw people in, luring them with power, with profit, with possessions, with pleasure. But it's all false. And in the end, it delivers nothing but despair and destruction. People have rejected God, the one true God of humanity, of the world, and have gone after selfish pleasures, which in the end will bring them self-inflicted pain. Indeed, it will bring them a sinful separation from God forever. As the scarlet beauty is exposed, we saw her popularity, her perversion, her promoters, her prosperity, her personality, and even her persecutions. She swallows people up. She spits them out again. She was, verse 6, drunk with the blood of the saints. The system of belief is responsible for the deaths of every saint of God who has ever died at the hands of false religion. This harlot is responsible for the deaths of God's children and will be judged for her bloodthirsty ways. It's at this point, and this is where we finished last week, uh, that John is astonished, uh, having seen and learned all that. Just look at what John thought there at the end of verse 6. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. John was expressing something uh, of his confusion, of his shock, of his astonishment, of being frightened by the ghastly sight of such a contrastingly magnificent figure of the woman, but with that such deadly intent of hers. John was a devout believer, and he was astonished at the depravity of humanity, the outright rejection of the Lord that he saw. And actually, I think sometimes we feel that in our day, don't we? Things happen. People say things and do things. 
and we are shocked, astonished, confused, indeed frightened sometimes at the depravity of our fellow human beings. John wondered how people could abandon the worship of Christ the Lord for such a defiled belief system. He must have been astonished at the harlot's prominence, her seduction, the worldwide support that she received. We need to remember that John walked with Jesus. He had been taught by Jesus. He had witnessed the miracles of Jesus. He had watched Jesus die and amazingly saw him resurrected to life again. He had breakfast with Jesus on the seashore and then he saw that glorious ascension. And John had written it all down. You remember at the end of John's gospel, he had written it all down that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name And now John's been on this island of Patmos in exile. And he's just seen Jesus in his heavenly glory. He's fallen at his feet in awe and wonder. And having seen all of that, witnessed all of that, lived in all of that, believed all of that, John is now faced with the real depravity of humanity, the outright rejection of God. And he is astonished. And so the angel comes to explain it to him, to reveal the mystery of this beauty and the beast in which she rides And so in verses 7 through 14, we find the explanation of the scarlet beauty and the beast. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The angel sees John's wonder, his trying to figure all of this out in his mind, and so comes and offers an explanation. And his explanation is as much to do with the beast as it is to do with the beauty. And we need to keep in mind that in these chapters of Revelation, we are dealing with an unholy trinity. We're dealing with Satan, the dragon. We're dealing with Antichrist, the beast. We're dealing with a false prophet. And as we noted last week, the prostitute may be drawing people in, but it's the Antichrist who is the power and influence behind it all. And so to the beasts, we turn again. And the description of the beast here in these verses is similar to the other description of the beast that we've seen particularly in Revelation 13 at the start. And so we see the rise of the beast here in verse 8. The rise of the beast. The beast uh, which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. The beast, the beast which you saw refers to the Antichrist. John has had a vision of him already in chapters 11 and chapter 13, the start of this chapter. And the beast which he saw is this man with tremendous human genius and human ingenuity and power, brilliance, leadership that captures the world. He's the one riding on the white horse in chapter 6 who comes and who conquers. He conquers the world. Notice in verse 8 it says that he was, is not, and is about to come. And that reminds us, if you need any reminding, of the fake resurrection that he supposedly pulls off. It's described back in chapter 13. He exists. He's doing fine. And then it appears that he dies and he comes back to life again. And that fabricated resurrection pulled off literally convinces those in the world alive at the time that he is the great leader, that he is not only the one to be followed, but the one to be worshipped. 
And it says that he comes up out of the abyss. And that reminds us that at some point in this time, this man will literally be indelt and dwelt by a demon from the abyss. He'll conquer the world by his power. And certainly he'll be energized in some ways by Satan. But at some point, probably at the point of his fake resurrection, he was energized from hell. A great, powerful demon source within him will then allow him to begin to do the things that are really astounding that we've seen. But we're reminded in the middle of this verse. We're reminded in the middle of this verse that he is going to his destruction. But for a period of time, he will have some power in the world first. Verse 9 tells us a little bit more. This calls for a mind with wisdom. Quite simply, this means that John requires to pay a little bit more attention here. In fact, a whole lot more attention. John, you need to focus in here. And I'm glad it means that because I was sitting puzzling this week. Uh, it calls for a mind with wisdom. And I'm thinking to myself, how on earth am I going to explain this? There's no wisdom here. Uh, but I'm glad it's about paying attention. It's about going deeper uh, in that we might understand the seven heads, verse 9, are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his uh, destruction. This is hard. And it's difficult, and people have differing views on this. Some of you will differ from me on this, but as I try and wrestle with it and wrestle with these views and trying to figure a way through, I just want to explain them to you as simply as I can, okay? Uh, there are seven hills around Rome, but I don't think that we can equate necessarily these seven uh, uh, Roman, uh, these two seven Roman rulers as some do. They could refer to the seven continents, emphasizing the world domination of the beast, and that is certainly a possibility that is true as well. Both of those could be true interpretations here. But John's told there that there are seven kings, and five have fallen, and one is, and one is yet to come. And so if we consider the five Gentile world empires that had fallen by the time of John's vision— you can begin to see maybe just a little bit more clearly. Um, this works for me, but it might not work for you. It's just another thought in the process here of what this could mean. Our Old Testament teaching speaks to us of those five fallen empires of being Egypt, of being Assyria, of being Babylon, of being Media, Persia, and of being Greece. And those five have fallen. And the one that is the one that existed at the time John is writing these words is very clearly Rome. It is Rome. There's no doubt about that. But that still leaves us with the one that is yet to come. And that for me is a picture of the future kingdom of the Antichrist. And his kingdom will no doubt draw from the characteristics of the previous six and we have that number seven, which kind of always reminds us of completeness and of power. And the beast is going to rise to power and to influence. The beast as a man, a kingdom, will embody the brutality, the greatness, the splendor, the strength, the wickedness of all of these great nations and empires. But like all worldly empires, here's the bit we really need to get to. Like all worldly empires, 
it will have its day, and it's going to come to an end. Even with all of his power, with all of his popularity, the Antichrist is headed to destruction, brilliantly organized with a plan for world domination. It will be impressive for a time, a very brief time, as it stands in pale comparison to the eternal and everlasting kingdom of God. The world has a plan, but it's God's plan that will endure and last forever. And whilst we're thinking hard here, I'm trying to puzzle out what these nations mean. And you can tell me afterwards why you think it's Rome or why you think it's the empires of the world. Or you might want to agree with me. That might be quite nice for a wee change. But that's okay as well. Well, we're thinking hard. The eighth king. Seven. Why is there an eighth? Who is the eighth? How can this be? And we already know the answer. For we've spoken of the so-called death and resurrection of the beast. So he is both one of the seven and himself also is the eighth. The angel told us to think carefully, to pay attention, to have a mind with wisdom. And so something there of the rise of the beast, and I've probably just confused us all even more, which is okay. You can go and listen to it again later on and puzzle it all out. But I want to speak of the reign of the beast as well in here. Because verses 12 to 14, we see something of the reign. Verse 12, it says, The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. Here we find an alliance formed with the beast. The ten horns are ten kings. These kings have never reigned. Uh, They've never received a kingdom as yet. It appears that Antichrist is going to appoint these uh, kings to reign under him, ensuring his complete domination of the world scene. And over the years, some have come to speak of these as a 10-nation confederacy of a revived Roman empire. And at some point as I was growing up, I remember people telling me that this would be the EEC as it once was before it morphed into the EU that we have just left. The truth is we've got no idea who those 10 kings are, okay? Um, What we do know is that they will be around for a very short period of time. The reign and rule will be brief for one hour. For one hour is a, a, an idiom of speech referring to a very short period of time. What else we know is that they will be utterly devoted to the beast. Verse 13 says that they have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. The Antichrist is going to take control of the world. He's going to divide it up. He's going to put people in there who are sort of like sub-kings who answer to him, who serve his purpose, give all their power and influence to him, all their authority to him. The world has submitted to his evil influence. Even uh, the kings of the earth, all uniting under a banner of sinfulness and rebellion. They do his will, and they do his will alone. He is a God to them And what is his purpose? The rise of the beast, what is his, the reign of the beast, what is his purpose? His purpose is to destroy Christ, to destroy destroy Christians, to destroy Israel, to prevent the kingdom. Look at the start of verse 14 there. They will make war against the Lamb. And yet verse 14 speaks of them, uh, doesn't speak of them, speaks not of them winning the battle but actually it speaks of the ruin of the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. This is yet another reference to the battle of Armageddon. 
Uh, the nations of the earth will gather to wage war uh, against the Lamb of God. And Jesus will overcome the beast and his allies fully defeating the world system they have created. The Lamb will overcome. That's the repeated theme of the book of Revelation, that the Lamb will be unveiled, the Lamb will be revealed, the Lamb will triumph. Jesus wins. That's the sum and substance of this whole book. Jesus wins. Sin is defeated. Satan is doomed. Our Savior declares victory and brings in a new heaven and a new earth. And we shout out, hallelujah. It's an interesting phrase there attached to the end of verse 14. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Listen, if I'm right in my reading and interpretation of Revelation, and I might be and I might not be, okay, this speaks of the redeemed. It speaks of the Lord's bride, the saved. It speaks of you and it speaks of me. When he comes, we are coming with him. We will watch the lamb do battle and shout for him as he claims victory over all his enemies. What a day that's going to be. Now that's a whole lot in those verses. Uh, some explanation. Hopefully I've made some of it a little bit clearer. But if I haven't, I want you simply to remember those two words that we've remembered all the way through this series, okay? Jesus wins, right? If you're confused, if you don't understand, if I've just made it uh, harder than it was before, Jesus wins, okay? That's the simple bottom line. But let's finish this chapter because we see the extermination of the scarlet beauty. This evil influence of a one-world religious system will enjoy a season of prosperity, of deception, but it's destined for destruction. God has always hated and dealt with false religion, and the great prostitute will be no exception. Her extermination will put an end to all the false religion of humanity. Uh, extermination. I, I, I needed a word that fitted with me. Easy to understand there, by the way. And I went back to my doctor, who days? Exterminate, exterminate, exterminate the Daleks. But her extermination, her end, uh, will come we're drawn back to the beauty as we finish. And we see the beast and her allies doing their worst. Once a friend, now they have nothing but hatred for her. And isn't that the way of the world, by the way? Your friend one day, your enemy the next. Drawn close one moment, cast aside the next. Loved one time, hated the next delighted in, then destroyed. And some of us have experienced that in our own lives at times with our friends and the groups that we have. And it's still there at the very end. This beauty that did so much. And now the Antichrist's had his way and throws her to the side. Here we see the reality of it in verse 15. Uh, well, verse 15 we spoke of last time actually as the explanation of the waters on uh, which the great prostitute sat, the great influence she amassed. It's verse 16 we're interested in. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin. They will leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. After the Antichrist and his minions used his scarlet, power to, uh, scarlet beauty to achieve power, uh, they will turn on her. When they've reached the pinnacle of their success, they have no more need of a religious system. They turn on the great prostitute and they totally destroy her. They've used her to establish their dominance, but just like a woman of the night, she will be used and rejected. How sad. 
And yet how evil people operate. Love for the woman will turn to hate from the ten kings and the beast. They will strip her of all the wealth she has confiscated throughout the world. They will bring her to ruin, it says. Leave her naked. The beast and his kings will turn on her. Evil will attack evil once more, but with the greatest ferocity that the world will ever see. They will tear away her personal support, her position, her power, her prestige. They will expose her moral corruption. They will eat her flesh. We've seen that in Scripture before. Of course we have. They will eat her flesh like the dogs devoured the corpse of Jezebel in 1 Kings 21 and 2 Kings chapter 9. They will burn her with fire. In a moment, she is old news, never to be seen again, and her demise will be greatly lamented by those who have loved and whored with her, as a chapter 18 plainly teaches. And we're left asking ourselves the question, why would he do it? Why would the Antichrist do that to the beauty that's gained him so much? Well, let's just see the reason for it as we finish. Verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. Who's directing the whole deal here? God is. God is from start to finish to execute his purpose by having a common purpose. God wants this one, uh, this whole one world empire. God wants it just the way Satan is taking it so that God in one great act can destroy it all. God uses these wicked men to carry out his will against false religion. It's all part of God's providential plan and we've seen that right through scripture. We were talking about Habakkuk on Thursday night at the prayer meeting. And at the start of Habakkuk, Habakkuk's praying that God would do something to judge the wicked in his land. And what does God do? He brings in the enemy. He brings in the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to destroy the believers, the so-called believers, members of God's family who are wicked. And Habakkuk goes, how is that possible? And yet here in Revelation, right at the end, we have God doing the very same thing. He's bringing in the ungodly to deal with the ungodly. So can I throw a footnote in here? One good reason for us not to meddle with Satan and the things of Satan are that he might just be doing God's will. God wants these kings to give their kingdom to the beast. He wants the cup of iniquity to be full. He wants the war with the lamb. Why? Because he wants to totally destroy all wickedness on this earth. His words will be fulfilled. His prophecies uh, of judgment, of Christ's return, of the establishment of his kingdom will be fulfilled. The mysteries of God are going to be finished. God hates false religion. In the end of the world, he will use the ungodly to destroy the ungodly. Organized religion is a disgrace to God. When ritual, when tradition, when the doctrines of men take prominence over the Lord God, it is false worship. It doesn't matter what name they have over the door. It doesn't matter what they claim to be. When anything or anyone but the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of attention, it is a false religion and it will be destroyed by God one day Aren't you glad of a sovereign God? There's a reason to rejoice in this verse here. It confirms for us that God is in control of the whole situation. The world that we live in is filled with evil, but God will accomplish what he pleases. 
the beast will hate the Lord and all that he stands for, but in the end, he will submit to the power of God and destroy the very thing that he created. Chapter 17 gives us a picture of the judgment of the great prostitute. It gives us a picture of the final destruction of the final form of false religion that this world will come up with. And all that's left now is the beast and his world empire, which Christ will destroy. And to better understand the beast and his empire, we have to go through chapter 18, another incredibly hard chapter to come to next week on a dedication Sunday. No, no, we'll leave it a few weeks and come to that in a few weeks' time. But for today, let me close by reminding us that this chapter speaks of the fact that Jesus wins. We see here the deception of humanity as the Antichrist works through the great prostitute to lure people into his one-world religion and system. Yet in the end, it's all destroyed as God's perfect providential plan is fulfilled. We have to be aware, though, that people are still being deceived today. And dare I say it, it happens in the church as well. People led astray, people turning from the only way from Jesus and deceived uh, into compromise, deceived into false religion. And it doesn't even have to actually have an element of faith or a so-called God to it. Because actually, if you look at some of the, uh, the, the compromises that people make today to fit in with the world, it's horrible. C.J. Mahaney, a, a pastor in the States, wrote, Today, the greatest challenge facing evangelical Bible-believing Christians is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. There's an element of truth there, but I do think there's a great deal of persecution coming. I think we see some of that today already. But the second half of that statement is so true as well. Seduction by the world. The Christian apologist C.S. Lewis a number of years ago wrote and would add to this, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are too easily pleased, writes C.S. Lewis. Mud pies in the slum because we can't imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Friends, I started last week by asking us to hold one question in mind as we went through chapter 17. Why? Why would any sane person choose Babylon over the new Jerusalem? The world, Babylon, the great prostitute offers us mud pies in the slum. But in the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem where Jesus rules and reigns, the King of kings and the Lord of lords offers us a glorious holiday at a crystal sea that will last forever. Don't be too easily pleased. Do not be seduced by a world that can never deliver what is truly lasting and ultimately satisfying. Look to Jesus. And look to Jesus because as he himself said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you come to believe in Jesus? To trust him alone for your salvation? This is the moment. Don't leave it too late for that trumpet could sound at any moment and you could be left behind. 
that you want to play? Uh, mud pies in the slum? Or do you want to rejoice by the crystal sea? Let's pray. Loving God, we want to thank you for your word to us this morning. We want to thank you for the wonderful reminder that you are in control. That, Lord, we might look out and think that things are, are, are way off track, that they're so out of control, that it's lost. And in so many ways, it is lost. But, Lord, you know what's going on, and you know what's coming, and you know how it's all going to end. And we thank you that we trust in a sovereign God. And so, Lord, we leave the future in your hands. But, Lord, in the midst of that, we want to pray uh, that you would keep us close to you. Lord, that we wouldn't be easily deceived, that we wouldn't be easily seduced by the world around us. Now, Lord, we wouldn't go looking to play mud pies in the slump. But, Father God, that we would look and long to be gathered around the crystal sea with our, our Lord and our God, our King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, I do want to pray this morning, though, for any here who don't know you, for any who have yet to put their trust and their faith in you, Lord, this morning I pray that they would take that bold step to leave the world behind and to put their trust and their faith in Christ for the future. Father God, for any who have wandered astray, for any who have been seduced by the world, Lord, I pray this morning that their eyes would be opened again afresh to the truth and that you would draw them back to you. Lord, help them to find life in all its fullness and the best place, the only place it can be found in Christ alone. Father God, help us to watch for the danger signs. Help us to follow our Savior. Help us to live for you each and every day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.